0: there could exist a vicious cycle or minority trap, meaning that in a profession where a group is underrepresented, they become more likely to drop out simply because of their underrepresentation.
1: Hi, I'm Clémentine Van Fonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Xiaoyi Shan received her PhD in economics from the University of Zurich. She's currently working at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania as a postdoctoral researcher. Her research focuses on topics related to disparities, biases, social interactions, and human capital. In this episode, we talked about her recent work on the minority trap, or how minority status causes women to leave male-dominated fields such as economics. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. I first wanted to ask you why you decided to study the impact of being a minority for women in certain educational fields. How did this idea come to mind for you?
0: The broad motivation for the paper is simply the fact that even now in the 2020s, women remain underrepresented in many occupations and professions, especially those that are skill intensive, competitive and highly paid. Such as computer science, business, and economics. This is concerning not only from a diversity perspective, but also from an economic and efficiency perspective. We know that the underrepresentation of women in high earning professions still counts for a large fraction of the gender pay gap in our society. And the systematic lack of women in skill intensive industries also implies that human capital or talent is misallocated, which could even slow down economic development. And to me personally, what seems even more concerning is the dynamic feature. You probably have heard a term called the leaky pipeline. It describes vividly the phenomenon that in many male-dominated professions, the fraction of women actually becomes lower and lower as the career ladder goes up. It means that even for the women who were initially interested in and have chosen to enter these professions, they become more and more likely to leak out. So that phenomenon really motivated me to focus on the unbalanced gender or women's minority status itself as a barrier to their persistence in male-dominated professions.
1: So you chose specifically to study students in economics during their first year at university Could you tell us why it is a relevant moment to look at that and to intervene?
0: The setting for my study is a large introductory economics class in university, and the students are primarily in their first semester. I think it's a relevant setting and also a right moment to examine the role of minority status for several reasons. First, this class represents a typical male-dominated setting. As we know, economics is a male-dominated field in many Western countries. At the undergraduate level, the share of female students is usually around a third. That's also what I observe in this setting. Overall, about 30% to 40% of the students in the class are women. Second, this economics class is compulsory for all students who are enrolled in a major or a minor study program related to economics. In that sense, it's really the starting point of the pipeline for the economics profession. And I think it's very crucial to understand the role of minority status already in the beginning of this pipeline. It's also a natural stage to study the effect of minority status. We all know that first semester in college is a very formative period. Um, Students come from different regions of the country or even different countries. They will meet new people, uh, learn new things, and update their beliefs, behaviors, and even plans for the future. As peers are a crucial component of their social environment, it's also natural that they will get affected by their peers or their status among peers.
1: So now let's talk about how you investigate and practice the impact of being a minority. You ran a field experiment. So first wanted to ask you, why is it useful in this case to run a field experiment? And also, how did you implement it?
0: So first, why do we need an experiment? The key reason of running an experiment using economic terms is to ensure that we can causally identify the impact of minority status. This is actually challenging empirically because in real life, our social networks are self-selected and self-formed. We choose our friends, our co-workers, study mates, or partners based on our preferences, our personality traits, our skill sets, so on and so forth. That means if we just observe women who have more female friends, and women who have fewer female friends and compare their dropout. We cannot really tell, you know, if the difference in the dropout is caused by the minority status or actually driven by the underlying differences in personalities, abilities, or other factors that we don't know or observe. However, with an experiment, we can randomly vary, you know, the composition of the social network or the group so that we can safely pin down the impact of minority status on dropout or other outcomes. Then how did I actually implement the experiment? What I did very simply is that in the beginning of the semester, I offered students the opportunity of having a random study group. The sign up for the groups was totally voluntary and they knew that the group assignment will be random. And then after the sign up stage, for those who have registered, I randomly put them into small groups with four people. As you can imagine, due to the random assignment, the groups vary in the gender composition. So for example, some groups are female minority, meaning that there is only one woman and three men. And some groups are gender balanced with two women and two men, while others are actually female dominated. And then by comparing women assigned to female minority groups to women assigned to other groups that are not male dominated, I can identify how minority status affects women's outcomes.
1: So about what these study groups do together, I wanted to ask you first, like, how long do you observe them? And also you try to foster some social interactions in these groups and how do you do that in practice?
0: So the overall experiment lasts from September to December, basically covering the fourth semester. That's the timeline of the experiment. And what the students do together, the official purpose, of course, is to, you know, study together for the economics class. So that's why we call them study groups. Um, So they could, you know, study together, like go through a lecture content. They could work on problem sets together. They could prepare the final exams together, so on and so forth. They could also study for other courses that they have in common, of course. But apart from the academic activities, they could also do, you know, extracurriculum activities together, hang out, you know, have beers together, dinner or go hiking, you know, all these things. So it's really up to them, you know, what they do.
1: So to establish the effect of being a gender minority, you look at different outcomes. Could you tell us how you measure them?
0: So I mainly use two sources of data in the setting. First is administrative data that I acquired from university. So the admin data helps me to observe like students' educational outcomes, including the dropout rate, the performance, and also later on like which study program they are registered in. And the second source of data is survey data that I collected myself. I conducted two surveys, actually, usually for a field experiment. There is a baseline survey that's conducted at the beginning of an experiment. And there's also an endline survey that was conducted at the end of the semester at baseline. You know, the survey collects students background characteristics, for example, their personality traits their previous educational performance, their beliefs and expectations about future performance, and so on and so forth. And then at the end of the semester, importantly, I measure students' educational expectations and, you know, or related beliefs again. So that relates to one of the mechanisms that I study. And also, I ask them to actually report or tell us, like, how frequently they interact with each other in the group, how they think about their peers in terms of different dimensions. That also is like an important dimension that I look at in the paper.
1: So, at the end, what happens to women who are assigned to a group where they are a genuine minority in your study?
0: So, overall, I find that women assigned to female minority groups, the groups where women are underrepresented, they become much more likely to drop out of the course. So, the overall difference is about 11 percentage points, so it's a pretty large gap. Notice that, you know, this class is compulsory for their study program. So dropping the course means that they cannot continue their study program. They have to either, you know, switch their major or minor or even drop out of the university. So it's a really relevant outcome here.
1: And do you observe potential reasons why women become marginalized and decide to drop out these measures? Like what are the potential mechanisms behind these effects?
0: So in the paper, I discuss and show suggestive evidence on three potential mechanisms. The first one is the perception about women's minority status. The idea is very simply that, you know, our perception of our status in an overall social environment depends quite a bit on our immediate environment, our immediate social networks. For example, if I come to a PhD program that is like totally male dominated, like wherever I go for seminars, for lunch, I'm the only woman there then I will perceive like a pretty strong or salient minority status of women in the field. So that's actually what I observe as well. I find that in the setting, you know, at baseline, women have similar levels of belief about the overall gender ratio of students in the class. But in the end of the semester at the end line, women in female minority groups believe that the course is composed of fewer women, meaning that they now think the course is more male-dominated. So that's a possible mechanism because, you know, this pronounced minority status could undermine women's sense of belonging to the field, can trigger like a stereotype effect, feeling that this is not something I could do or I want to do, right? So that's the first mechanism. The second mechanism relates to people's or students' self-confidence or efficacy about their ability or their future achievement. So as I mentioned in the survey, both at baseline and end line, I asked students like a few questions about how they think about the future achievement in the field, including a grade for the class, the probability that they will pass all the first semester classes, and also the highest degree that they could obtain in the future. What I find is that women in female minority groups, they lower their expectations much more compared to women in other groups, meaning that because of this unbalanced generation, they become less confident about themselves, they are more pessimistic about future achievement. So that's a possible mechanism because naturally, you know, if I think that I cannot perform well in the field, it just doesn't make sense to you know, stay in the field. And lastly, the third mechanism that I focus on relates to the peer-to-peer interactions and relationships. So we know for college students socializing with others is really important like it's something that generates consumption value in itself right so if i'm isolated if i don't get along with my peers i would perceive lower value just to stay here so what i find in the setting is that on average women in female minority groups they have lower intensity or frequency of interaction with their peers they don't do like much academic or social events as much as you know women in other groups so that means they are socially isolated and furthermore I find this isolation is potentially driven by men's preference rather than women's preference what do I mean by that I as I said like I asked them to you know report their perception of how they think about each other in the group so I asked them like How much do you think this student is smart, helpful for your study? So I find that women in female minority groups, they are systematically evaluated lower by their peers. You know, the peers think this woman is less helpful, less smart, less bound to work with, less social, you know, just systematically lower. And interestingly, I find that minority status of men, you know, doesn't really affect women's evaluations of them. So that suggests, you know, that men have a homophily or the same gender preference in networking, and that could lead to women's dropout behavior. La minute technique.
1: So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their research. And so you are talking about the different outcomes and the different groups that you're looking at, and I wanted to ask you about what is the sort of basic intuition behind the correction for multiple hypothesis testing, where is this problem coming from, and why do we actually correct the p-values when we do look at different outcomes in different groups?
0: The problem we are talking about is called multiple hypothesis testing. It's one type of publication bias that you know, researchers have become more and more aware of. The issue is basically that when you have many hypotheses or theories to test, then it's just uh, statistically you know, more likely that you will find at least one or two of them that actually work. You know? So we can think of like a simple probability example, like suppose we have two events, A and B, each of them has a likelihood of one half to happen, or you know, to hold. But overall, the likelihood that you will find either of them happen is three quarters. So it's just like more likely to detect something that holds when you have many hypotheses. Now, how do we deal with that? So I think in general, there's like two approaches or solutions that economists have come up with. The first approach is to Highlight the importance of pre-registration for your experiments and for your analysis. The purpose is really to you know to make the list of hypotheses that you test transparent in the beginning, so that you're not like cherry picking you know to only report the thing that you find as significant results. And the second method to deal with the issue, as you said, is to implement a multiple hypothesis testing correction for your p-values. There's different methods to do that based on statistical rules or based on data simulation, but in essence, the purpose is just to correct for this statistical chance that you will be more likely to find you know, something significant when you have multiple hypotheses.
1: So now that we've seen the impact of being assigned to a group where you are a minority, the natural question is how can we make things better? And I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, the next steps for, you know, designing these intervention and study groups, for instance, but also what is left on the table in terms of research in this domain? What are the next steps?
0: I think the most direct implication of my results relates to like how we should best allocate groups in different settings. We know that small groups are actually pretty common, you know, in different settings. We have study groups, we have work groups, we have joint projects, labs, you know, joint offices for PhD students. That's something I experienced as well. So a lot of these cases, common practice that I have heard of is that they try to evenly like allocate the women into different groups. Just to make an example, suppose now I'm like an IT firm, there's a hundred employees you know, coming in, I want to allocate them into different work groups. Suppose it's 100 employees, 90 of them are men and 10 of them are women. How do I do? Like, a common practice would be just you know, create 10 groups and allocate 10 women evenly into these 10 groups so that each one has nine men and one woman. The idea or rationale behind such a practice is to actually you know, help women to blend in or link in you know, to such a male typed culture. But actually, what my results suggest that it is perhaps the worst you can do because you actually expose all the women to a pretty salient minority status. It could undermine their sense of belonging. It could make them less confident about themselves or even just kick them out eventually. So what we should do instead is simply, you know, we should create more gender balance groups, put women into groups where they have more female peers and co-workers instead of, you know, evenly spread them out. So so that's the most direct implication. And at a more broad level, I think what my results suggest is that there could exist a vicious cycle or minority trap, meaning that in a profession where a group is underrepresented, they become more likely to drop out simply because of their underrepresentation. And this could just go along and it's a vicious cycle. So to kind of counteract this minority trap, I think we should think more hardly, you know, at the professional level or industry level, maybe implement some big push policies, you know, to correct the dominant culture that is toxic, that is discriminatory, you know, towards the underrepresented group, or we try to attract more women or underrepresented groups to the field in the beginning so those are the policy implications i think for the paper now in terms of like what we can do in the future i think two things still remain to understand the impact of minority status one is the dimensions like different dimensions of minority status like i talked about gender you know women's underrepresentation in male dominated fields Naturally, we know there are many fields where men are also underrepresented, like all the pink color jobs, you know. Of course, there's also other settings where like a certain group in terms of race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, or even beliefs are underrepresented. So the minority trap, I think, could also apply to them. I think so far we still don't have enough evidence to say this is like a systematic uh, pattern. But I think future research could explore that. The second direction for future research is actually to look at like different intensities of minority status. So as you have probably noticed in my setting, I only have one scenario of minority status. And that is when there's only one woman in a group. So naturally, you might think about like groups of five. Would it be different that if I'm the only woman out of five or I have a female peer, so it's like two women out of five? Would it be enough just to have one extra female peer? Or is it just not enough if you are in the minority? So I think to understand this whole spectrum of like how gender composition affects people's dropout rate would be important, especially when we think about the policy implications, like what we can do to solve the problem.
1: So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had a recommendation for our listener of a, a book, a movie, or anything you would like to share with us.
0: I actually want to recommend a book very much related to the paper I talked about. So it's a book written by Joanna Ross. The title is How to Suppress Women's Writings. It's a fascinating and shocking book to me. So it basically summarizes and vividly depicts all the different forms of criticisms, stereotypes, and discriminations against female writers and authors. For example, people could just deny that female authors exist or, you know, such books exist. They could use double standards when evaluating men's work and women's work. For example, they say, like, this is a masterpiece if it's written by a man, but really disgusting if it's written by a woman. Like all sorts of, like, shocking stereotypes. I want to recommend the book simply because it actually helped me to think about discrimination or stereotypes against, you know, underrepresented groups. It helps me to see or realize that stereotypes can take different forms. It could be direct denial, could also be very indirect and implicit, like, forms of discrimination. For example, by imposing social norms or expectations to basically demean women's role as writers, or like use different standards when judging, you know, different genders work, as I mentioned. I also have some ongoing work showing that discrimination can show up in very subtle and unexpected ways that we may not even notice in, you know, a usual way. Finally, I also just want to like add, you know, I think like as I mentioned, these like obstacles and uh, dilemmas faced by women in male-dominated fields are not only restricted to them, it could also apply to other underrepresented groups, anyone who wants to do something that's out of the box, that's not typical of their group. All of us should care about this issue and and think hard about how we should solve them.
1: Thank you so much, Yao, for sharing this and for talking about your research with me. That was great.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: This was Inequality Talks a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoît for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.